Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Although I enjoy my job immensely, one of the drawbacks is the perception that I unquestioningly love digital technology and the internet. In the January issue, Fred Turner, a professor of communication at Stanford University, traces the history of modern computing and shows how tech's focus on utopian individuality, a product of America's fight against fascism, has made it even easier for authoritarians to influence and mislead citizens, and to say nothing of the tracking data that is used by governments and advertisers. Turner joined me for an enlightening discussion that goes beyond calls to delete your account. Here's a conversation. Your article was so fascinating because it's less than technological determinism, which has existed over many different cultures and periods of history. You're making this argument that this American obsession with collective individuality. Um, Can you talk a little bit about who the new communalists were and that sort of switch toward collective individuality and how it's such a part of American life and technology. Absolutely. So, you know, we often imagine that technologies um, bubble up into society and just start doing things because of the way that they are, the way that they're built, the way that they're designed. You know, in fact, how we use technologies depends a lot on the cultural conditions into which they're born. And in America, the internet and later social media were born into a world obsessed with collective individualism. And it sounds like a contradiction in terms, collective individualism, but but it's not really. Um, you know, particularly in, well, we'll get to the 1960s in a minute. In the 1940s, there's a terrible fear that there's a mass um, society forming up, particularly in Germany and among the fascists. And the question is, how do we in America build an alternative society? And how would we even define our society as against that kind of mass hierarchical fascist society? And the answer that people began to, to, to come up with was, we, we are flexible, collaborative individuals, and we need to build our society around our individuality and let that be the source of our unity. In the 1960s, that vision becomes central to the largest wave of commune building in all of American history. Uh, between 1966 and 1973, as many as three quarters of a million people left their homes and went to live communally. And they hoped in that space to escape politics, to escape hierarchy, and to build communities of consciousness around their own individuality, sort of shared individuality. They were going to have a kind of space where they could, as Mark Zuckerberg would now say, connect with one another, um, feel one another in space, talk with one another, and out of their conversations would come social order. Why was that, you know, out of anywhere in the country, why did that have the biggest sort of influence on the nascent tech startups in California? So we often think of, of tech and particularly the Internet, again, as a, you know, as a product of a military industrial research culture. And it absolutely was. But that culture it became entwined with the American counterculture, particularly in the San Francisco Bay Area. You know, um, Stanford University, center of uh, the development of Google and other firms, um, is only 40 miles south of San Francisco. And in the 1960s, as new technologies were being developed in, in what was soon going to be called Silicon Valley, we had right there in the same place a center of the commune movement. Um, between San Francisco and Palo Alto, where, where Stanford is, um, you had any number of communes and people involved in that movement. And people in the tech world slid back and forth in and out of the commune world. And I, I think that's a very important tie. The other thing to know 
is that, you know, we tend to think that hippies rebelled against the Cold War military industrial establishment. And of course, in many ways, that's true. But they also embraced one idea from that place. And this is partly why they were so amenable to engaging with engineers in, in Silicon Valley in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And that idea was that if politics are bankrupt, what we need to do is engineer new conditions in which to build a new kind of society. We can, through computers, through telephones, through systems of consciousness transformation, we can um, connect to one another directly and so evade the kind of top-down hierarchy uh, of government or before that particularly fascist government. And so folks in the counterculture, in the commune movement, in California, when the tech world was growing here, were already bought into a kind of engineering-centered vision of a social ideal. Right. And this has to do with people who like to use bureaucratic as a synonym for ineffectual. And that's not that's not always necessarily the case. Um, you briefly touch on this in your article, but could you describe when computing was sort of starting, there was this military industrial complex um, aspect of it, but then there was also this hobbyist open source element of what they were doing that sort of helped get what we now have, you know, what everyone has in their office, everyone has in their home, what they have in their pocket. You know, the difference between open source software versus what Apple does now where you have to get only <laughs> only things that they developed from their developers and how that sort of shaped the, you know, how that has played a role in the agency of consumers. Ever since the first digital computer appeared, which is about 1946, there's been a tension between two quite distinct models of computing and computing's role in American life. One is highly centralized um, in service of large corporations. You know, many of the first computers were room-sized and in the 1950s were deployed primarily in places like insurance agencies. The other vision um, was pioneered by a group of um, scientists, researchers, and social scientists clustered around a man named Norbert Wiener at, at MIT during the 1940s. And they came up with the term cybernetics, and their vision was quite different. In their vision, people would use computers and in some ways would be like computers themselves as information processing systems that would let them seek feedback from the world and then change their behavior accordingly. In Norbert Wiener's vision, we would live in a kind of interlinked network of computation and organic life. Um, as one poet in San Francisco, Richard Browdigan, said in 1967, we would be watched, all watched over by machines of loving grace. Mm. We would sort of live in a garden and be connected to one another. And, and, and so those two visions, the sort of centralized top-down control vision and the leveled collaborative machine-in-the-garden kind of vision move in tandem through time. And they come, and particularly in California, it's the, it's, the, it's the Norbert Wiener cybernetic vision that really takes off and, and, and is embraced by the counterculture. And in turn, in the 1980s, as computers are becoming desktop-sized, they're becoming, quote, personal computers, they get reimagined in the Bay Area by these hippies as tools of simultaneously cybernetic and utopian possibility. So suddenly it looks like the desktops of the PC revolution and then later this, our cell phones and other even smaller technologies are the tools of interconnection that will finally bring into being that world in which we can be all watched over by machines of loving grace. Now, that's happening in a context in America that's entirely commercialized and entirely for-profit. And the rise of for-profit firms in the Valley, I think, leads very directly to a kind of poaching of that utopian vision. 
so that, you know, you have a situation now where Mark Zuckerberg says, you know, we we Facebook live to connect everyone. But then if you look a little harder, you see that they actually have a two tier stock structure in which Mark Zuckerberg retains ultimate control and ultimate profit. And so he's playing two games at once, one, the kind of utopian Norbert Wiener, let's make the world interconnected game, and then the other, the for profit game. And I think that's a challenge for all of us who use computation today. There are elements of being networked to one another that are extraordinarily valuable, pleasurable, and important. And yet the same tools that connect us in those ways also render us vulnerable to having our social lives mined and monetized. Right. And I mean, so much of this attraction to sometimes, you know, addiction to social media comes down to sort of like the cloth monkey versus the wire monkey um, experiment, <laughs> you know, where the you know, scientists took a monkey, created a fake monkey that was warm and comforting, and then had another wire monkey that actually had food. And, you know, the monkey would die because it would not go to the food. It would only stay with the warm, fuzzy, fake mother. So is there a way? Could I address that point? Sure, directly? yeah. So, 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 so there's a, there's a, there's a, an interesting phenomenon. I think you know a lot of commercial for-profit social media systems and and other companies like search companies, search engines, are seeking ways to use the interface to um, to trigger certain psychological responses, certain emotional, affective, physical responses that cause us to behave in certain ways. And that's I, I think a largely pernicious development. But at the same time. You know, there's been a lot of research recently, and some of it done in a, in a wonderful book called Network Propaganda, um, authored by, by Yochai Benkler and, and a team at Harvard, showing that frequent exposure to the Internet does not necessarily produce authoritarian belief. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's fascinating. You know, the, the, the predominant groups associated with authoritarian belief in the United States are, in fact, people with lower exposure to the Internet and higher exposure to Fox television and television more generally. Mm. Does that have to do... I mean, sort of the second part of my question was going to be, is there like a safe way to reimagine these networks or do they just have to go? Because obviously, you know, a big part of why Fox News is so effective is because its audience is primarily older people. And a lot of those older people are incredibly lonely and very isolated. That's a great question. It's a really important question. And I actually, I actually think the key question in here somewhere is, um, how do we want to regulate our public life? Right. You know, we, we, we imagine that Facebook is a kind of tool of individual self-expression, and that's a legacy of the 60s and, and of the way the 60s played out in Silicon Valley. But Facebook is, in many ways, an extraction industry. It's a mine. It's a social mining operation. And it's one that's become so dominant that it is to our social world as standard oil once was um, to the oil oil that was under the ground in America. And so... I think one of the things that we need to do and are starting, I hope to do, is to wake up to the fact that we have not only the right, but the obligation to regulate these firms as we would any other large company profiting from the common wheel. And, and so, so I think the first step then is to first educate Congress so they actually know what we're talking about when we talk about apps. But, but second step is, is to begin to ask, okay, what do we want our public sphere to look like? And that might involve doing things like breaking apart Facebook. Um, you know, one of the ways that Facebook's so powerful, it's powerful in many ways, but, and I'm only using it as a single example, there are others, you know, but Facebook has the ability to capture, centralize, and resell extraordinary amounts of data in real time. That's something that you know, no firm has had uh, that I'm aware of, 
in recent history, and that's something that we can slow up. That's a process we can slow up. Part of the power of the internet to trigger things like Fox News and be manipulated by Fox News um, is a power that comes from uh, um, its centralization and its integration into a larger media system. You know, that media system became the way that it did, integrated television, radio, and internet, in part through massive deregulation in the 1980s and 90s. So I, I think we have to have the courage of our convictions and regulate the media sphere much as we do the landscape. We don't need the pollution. Right. Um, I want to go back to this question of lawmakers really not understanding what is going on. And, you know, I can't help but think of um, Ted Stevens, who referred to the Internet as a series of tubes, which is like mm -hmm. bad. But there's a part of it that is accurate in a certain way. Um, I'm not going to defend him. He has since passed on. Would you say that that need to educate people who are in a position of power, whose responsibility is that? The Facebook testimony in <laughs> front of this was just really absurd. Watching Mark Zuckerberg testify to, to, to the Senate and, to, and seeing, seeing the senators so unable to understand the fundamentals of the technology yeah. was deeply heartbreaking. Yeah. By the same token, if we're going to have a public debate about what we want technology to do, particularly technologies that control our public sphere, we need not only representatives, but a broader culture that understands how those technologies work. You know, so one of the things that we're trying to do very, we're working very hard at at Stanford is trying to produce a kind of curriculum where people ask the big human social questions, but also know enough about computers, computer science, to be able to ask them in the context in which we now live, a digital context. So who's responsible? We all are. Um, certainly the, the social media firms aren't going to educate Congress no. <laughs> um, because that would be contrary to, to their profit. Um, but I, I, I do think, for example, leading institutions like my own or others could certainly do workshops for Congress, you know, quick five-day workshops, you know, basics of the Internet. You know, here's what TCP IP is. Here's what an app is. Here's what a platform is. Um, here are the different ways that um, people's experience is turned into data and data is in turn resold. You know, real sort of nuts and bolts, basic, here's how this industry works stuff. Um, that's something we've done for any number of other industries, and we could certainly do it for the Internet. Right. There's this two-factor thing where people are afraid of something. They're afraid it's way too technical, mm -hmm. even though it is, as you just laid out, it's quite simple <laughs> how these places make money. Huh. And then it's also um, because these are privately controlled, there is no motivation for that level of thought or that necessary education to take place. And so it's just like, oh, it's tech stuff. And yep. it doesn't have to be that way. Not only doesn't have to be that way, but Silicon Valley has an enormous stake in keeping it that way. You know, so long as Silicon Valley can depict itself as the place the future comes from and, oh, you know, you guys in Washington, you're 3,000 miles away and you're so 19th century. And, you know, what you do back in Washington is regulate industry. We're not really an industry. We're more like, you know, conversational magic. Right. You know, and, and, and that's just not the case. But there's a piece that the rest of us have to kind of get used to as well. You know, because of the convenience of the Internet and because of the convenience of our cell phones and because we've all been raised in society so suffused with consumer ideology, it's almost hard for us to imagine going up against these firms in any but an individual context. Right. You know, I've been reading quite a lot lately about how we ought to all get off Facebook. Well, I agree. That's fine. But that's not going to put Facebook to bed. And nor is it going to, to, to cut through its monopoly on public discourse any more than stopping driving a car would stop Standard Oil from drilling in, pulling up oil and selling it to many other drivers. 
we need to learn to act collectively and we need to re-understand our government as something that acts on our behalf. You know, it can be corrupt, it can be broken, it can be chaotic, but it is the best representative that we have when we go up against large organizations, um, monopolistic organizations like the kind that are emerging today. I mean, so much of that limitation of imagination, the idea that how it works with greenwashing, the idea that, well, if I buy Mm. this product instead of this other product, I'm helping the planet. And that is usually not the case. And it comes from the same countercultural place. Exactly. That some of the utopian dreams that surrounded the early uh, personal computer and the early internet came from. You know, there were there were there were really two countercultures alive in the 1960s. One very much the new left doing politics to change politics, and the other the sort of these communalists I've I've written about. And it's the communalist wing not doing politics, but instead trying to find technologies that can transform consciousness that really drives and filters through Silicon Valley. And their vision is one in which you know, you, you buy certain goods, you acquire certain styles, costumes, technologies, tools, and through those you change your mind. You acquire LSD, you acquire stereos, you acquire an automobile, and suddenly you can experience kind of integrated global mobility. And that's deeply pleasurable and facilitates social change. And you can see that kind of consumer-driven vision of social change through a variety of industries today. You can see it in, in restaurants and food quite que- quite clearly. You know, um, if you eat kale from this place that was raised by these people, it will be better than if you ate, you know, the kale from that, whatever. Right. You know, that kind of consumer-centered pseudo-political action, it has some impact. I don't, don't get me wrong, but it's not the kind of action that we need today. And it actually disables you from thinking about how to get yourself organized institutionally using the levers of the state to push back on forces that are shrinking um, the range of your own life. Right. I mean, this is, you know, the the fact, like you say, that everyone wants to, is being told to delete Facebook, but maybe that's not expedient for them because they do, you know, part of their job, let's say, is mm-hmm. to reach people. But perpetuating the idea that we need to be grouped by mindset and that even very mm. um, liberal commentators, again, going back to things that the new... Uh, communitarians thought were ideal like you see you know anytime there's a very red state blue state election where it's very clear which is red and which is blue and people say oh well the south should just secede and it's like well that's a very facile take and that's not considering that you know districts were gerrymandered and all this other Mm -hmm. sort of different factors as to why there seems to be such a clear divide between thinking and that we have to sort of think collectively in a, in a different way, right? Yeah, and I think there's some lessons that we can take from both the right and from the South. You know, um, back, uh, back uh, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, um, when the Occupy movement was going on, mm-hmm. we on the left stood on the street corners and we shouted, we are the 99%. And that's great. We claimed the meme in the public space mm-hmm. and we felt, we felt terrific speaking together. We formed a human microphone. We, we demonstrated our inner lives and our inner truths and we performed them in the streets and nothing changed right. or very little. Meantime, the right wing was organizing through the Tea Party um, and through churches across the South. They were basically aiming straight for Congress, for our institutional power, and they took Congress. And we're suffering from that today. And this is one of the things that I think is most important. We on the left need to let go of our individualist bias. We need to let go of the idea, which we've inherited from the 60s, 
that performing our inner truth in the streets is enough to make social change. It just isn't. It's important. We shouldn't quit. No question about it. But, you know, ACT UP didn't have power only because it acted up in the streets. It had power because it turned its action in the streets into legislation about drugs and, and drug use that actually changed the treatment of people with AIDS. Right. That's the kind of chain that we need to follow all our, our way through. And people in the South have done that very well. I want to address one other piece about the South, which is that it's, it's deeply religious and religion is institutionalized there. And regardless of how you feel about a particular theology, churches do something for communities. They provide a third space that is neither state nor, um, nor corporate, neither state mm-hmm. nor, nor capitalist, in which very diverse people, people from all different classes, all different races, can in fact collaborate and do things together. And those churches were really important organizing spaces for the new right. I I think a challenge on the left is to ask ourselves, what are the institutions that we can build or leverage that will let us do similar institutional kinds of work? And some of them may, in fact, be churches. Right, exactly. I mean, there is a long tradition of progressive movements taking place in churches. Um, And I mean, obviously, we wouldn't have the country we have today if that did not take place. An important contrast, I think, is between civil rights and the yippies. You know, the civil rights movement starts in the 50s and is very much grounded in the churches of the South and to some degree later the North and is very much a movement that, that changes civil rights law. By 1968, you have the Yippies who are running Pegasus for president, and they are, they are demonstrating in a way that's really playing to the cameras. Mm-hmm. And it's powerful and it's fun and it's compelling and God, it makes great TV. But I can't think of a Yippie version of a civil rights law change. And I, I, I think we've... we've, we've clung a little bit to that yippie legacy, and I'd like us to re-embrace the legacy of civil rights. Right. I mean, I, I also think that, again, this divide, just speaking, mm. uh, you know, as someone who observes these things and has to live in a world where they have real consequences, I feel like there is sort of a tendency for Democratic candidates to lean very heavily on social media networks as opposed mm. to getting out and organizing. And I think of like, Hillary Clinton, you know, she's a slay queen uh, on mm, Twitter and she tells mm, Donald Trump mm. to delete his account and then she can't be bothered to go to Wisconsin. Um, right. So is that, is it, I mean, it comes, again, this comes down to a very basic question of psychology. It just seems that on a basic psychological level, maybe it's not good to be in constant contact with other people, whether they agree with us or they don't. I think it's really important to be in contact with other people, but in their bodies doing things together and not simply in their voices and their representations. You know, I was involved a long time ago when the Internet was just coming online um, with an NPR station in Boston, and they established a kind of online conversation space, and they let everyone um, be anonymous. And it immediately devolved into a complete troll fest. Mm. And, you know, that that's, I think, one of the lessons. I think social media can be powerful but they're powerful to the degree to which they connect our representations of ourselves in media space back to our collective actions offline in our bodies. I think one of the biggest challenges we face, and I go back again to Occupy, is figuring out how to work with people with whom we disagree. I think that's absolutely central. And with whom we have opposing interests. We have opposing class interests. We have opposing racial histories. We have a lot of very difficult issues to work through And those issues live in our bodies, and we need to work them out in our bodies. And social media can't do that work. Right. I feel like there's just something, again, very primal about seeing, Mm -hmm. like, you know, all the ridiculous Facebook 
arguments that take place in the comments where it's these two people who have never met, even though they're real, they're using their real names, they're bitterly fighting about something that maybe they don't even believe that strongly about. And it becomes this me versus them thing when in fact it could, you know, like the yellow vests uh, movement, for instance, that is something where a lot of different people are coming together and saying, hey, this cuts across a lot of different, like this hurts as much mm -hmm. for me as it does for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good example. I think that, you know, when the internet first came online, people got very excited because of the ease with which it allowed people to speak to one another and mm -hmm. allowed individuals to suddenly broadcast out. Over time, I think we've learned that that ease is itself a problem. Zainab Tufekci has written a wonderful book on, on this point on Twitter and tear gas, which is about the Arab Spring and about a series of, of revolutions and what she showed, or efforts at revolution. Mm -hmm. What she showed was that social movements to overthrow authoritarian regimes that relied on the internet um, were able to gather themselves very quickly and do things together very quickly. But when the state pushed back, they fell apart. And they fell apart because people in those movements hadn't done the long, hard work of building strong trust ties to one another. Um, the, the communication had been so easy that they hadn't actually had to fight for it along the way and weren't ready to fight for it when the state pushed back hard. And I, th I think there's a parallel lesson in the, in the, the piece that you're describing. Um, you know, we need to be with each other over a period of time. We need to build strong ties to each other in our bodies. Only those things are the, are the things that keep us from breaking out in kind of fractious, performative, online silliness. Right. Yes, it's never been easier to project you have the right politics, which is really something. Um, yeah, well, but, but it's so interesting because politics in some ways has become something like a fashion choice, right? Yes. I mean, in, in the same way that when, when cities were formed and it, there were suddenly these large metropolises, you could dress funny and walk down the street and express yourself in a way that, you know, would have been outrageous in the village you came from, but which just sort of draws some stares in the city. Mm -hmm. So now... You can say things that, that might be politically outrageous in the village you come from and parade a kind of new identity. And you have new tools to express, express your identity with. And they may be as meaningful to you as they appear to be, or they may be as not meaningful to you as perhaps a lightweight fashion choice in the city would have been at the turn of the century. That's a great analogy. And speaking of that need and who sort of parades in the street online. How mm. would you, I, this is a huge question, but I guess how would you <laughs> characterize um, how social media has changed the ecosystem of the web? Sort of as a separate oh, piece. That's a as really like a, great, that's a, yep, yep, yep. No, it's a great <laughs> question. So that's a really great question. It's actually, I don't think as big as it may appear to be. I don't think social media is is the driver of change on the web as we know it. You know, the, the, the web was always social. I spent mm -hmm. a lot of time studying the whole Earth Electronic Link, which was an early dial-in system built out of basically a bulletin board style system in the 80s without pictures in which people communicated with one another by, by dialing in on a, on a phone and typing in messages to one another. And that was as communicative and social as any system that we have today. So I don't think it's the social that matters. What I think matters is money. Mm. The, real, the real innovation here is the development of highly targeted real-time advertising. Because that's what transforms being social into a social mine. That's what transforms interaction into valuable data. That's what makes the data valuable. You know, the, the well certainly could have tracked its interactions, but there was not really quite so many people to sell them to in that time period. And so, so that's, that's where the value is. So I think it's advertising that has changed things dramatically. I mean, there are other 
people who are invested in tracking this stuff. Obviously, it is very sure. valuable to know down to very precise checkboxes of identity who you could potentially market to. But that's not the only those aren't the only people interested in this data. And that, and that and it's valuable for other reasons as well, right? Right. And this is this is where we return again to the 60s and we return to the idea of a military industrial complex. Mm. You know, you can clearly see in Silicon Valley strong ties between various tech firms and the National Security Administration. You know, th those things are, are right here. Um, there are soldiers, um, generally not in uniform, um, walking through the valley looking for tech things. Uh, my students get recruited by the military, by the CIA, by the NSA. Um, to develop computational technologies for those those organizations, so so those worlds are entwined. It's hard for me to imagine a, a world in which surveillance is strictly state driven and has and it has no context contact with um, commercial surveillance and and vice versa. Um, commercial surveillance and state surveillance kind of go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. There's a wonderful new book coming out on the surveillance economy by Shoshana Zuboff, in which she addresses, I think, some of these issues. And um, I, I think that's an important point. These these two worlds go together and have for a very long time. Um, and I, I think one of the, again, the habits that we have on the left is we, we, we tend to sort of, you know, if we're, you know, if we, if we were sort of raised on Marx, we tend to reject uh, the corporate world. And if we were were raised on the new left of the 60s, we tend to reject the state. Um, and those two forces are entwined in ways that, that if we're stuck in either of those traditions are hard to see. Right. And how they are actually connected isn't always immediately apparent because both are by nature secretive. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. To, yeah. They have they're goals. Hidden. I mean, they're, they're, not, they're, not just, they're not just hard to see. They're deliberately obscured. Right. You know? <laughs> I, you know, one of the things that I find most disturbing about being in Palo Alto is at the edge of the Stanford campus, I go to a coffee shop. It's a really fun coffee shop, makes the best coffee in town. It's directly across the street from Palantir, um, where the same hipsters who are shopping in my coffee shop um, are developing surveillance technologies for the NSA. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> that ability to be very precise with this technology, is that something... I can't help but think of Web 1.0 and that mm -hmm. crash where it was just sort of like, oh, yeah, just put everything online for free and that'll make money. And it's like, well, no, that's not <laughs> that's not making money. Um, were those technologies more or less in place at that time? Or is it something that is, you know, con or or, you know, and now they're a little bit more refined or is it something that is, you know, hand in hand with social you know, I'm trying to figure that out right now in my research. I honestly don't know the answer to that. It's a great historical question, and I think it's a really, really important one. I think if you look at the late 1990s, you can see an Internet in which people are experimenting with lots and lots of different ways to make money. Mm -hmm. You know, my favorite example is something like Pets.com, right? Oh, yes. You can order your pet thing, and then they'll, bring, they'll drive it up in a van. And the whole imagination of how you're going to make money involves the Internet just being sort of a front end, right? It just sort of replaces your walking into the store. Right. And the money-making part is in the sales on the back end. That's very different than the social media model that we have today, where you go online and sure, the services are free, um, but when you're online, everything you do will be tracked, datafied, and resold. I don't know how we moved from A to B, but I know that we did, and I know that, that, that it happened probably in the aughts, and that it's um, an extraordinary and very important transformation. Yeah, there's, it's free shipping from Amazon for a reason. Um. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I don't know if you if your if your television station broadcasts these ads the way that mine does here, but the, the, the ads that are scaring me the most right now are for Amazon Web Services. Mm. Because I'm I'm living in a world now where I'm getting my books through Amazon, I shop at Whole Foods, 
where I have coupons from the books I bought on Amazon, and I'm watching television that's advertising Amazon's global cloud. Now, unless you want to live in Orwell's 1984, boy, you'd better be thinking about antitrust legislation. Right. Um, communism is bad because the state controls everything and there are no choices. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, now, <laughs> and now we're free from We don't have that anymore. You know, I'm thinking of antitrust laws and how quaint it was that Microsoft had to, dis, you know, got dinged for doing something as quaint as putting a browser on their computers. And now it just seems like anything goes. I mean, is that change because... Again, this sort of lack of understanding what it actually means that you can only get apps from a verified developer and there is a shadowy committee of people who determine what is and what is not verifiable. That's a great question. You know, um, Tim Wu, who is a law professor at Columbia, has written really eloquently about antitrust and how it might be used. And if I remember right, um, he was reminding us that the problem with the browser at Microsoft wasn't that they put a browser on the computer. Rather, it was that they required you to buy their browser with their computer. It was pre-integrated, pre mm. and, and so they, they reduced your choice. Tim also pointed out that, you know, the Bell system, the telephone system, used to be a highly integrated monopoly um, and was broken up, and that when it was broken up, a whole slew of new services bubbled into being, um, generating more money for the people who ran the services and more service for the people who were using the, the tools. And I think that's entirely possible now. I do think there's an educational burden. We have to be able to explain to our government officials how the internet works, how these large firms make their money. And we also need, in our own left-centered sort of ideology space, to stop thinking of the way to make social change as being collectivized individuality. You know, we need to do things that are different than stand on the corner and, and, and speak our truth in the human microphone. We need to get to Washington, lobby our congressmen, and speak our truth through them into legislation. It's maddening to me um, that we still trust the um, gathering together of individual voice as if that were sufficient to make politics at precisely a time when companies like Facebook are gathering individual voices, encouraging or expressing ourselves just in that way so that they can monetize, map the interactions, and resell them to other firms. That's maddening. It's like offering ourselves up um, to the very forces that are hurting us and that are undercutting our politics. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, and yeah, even thinking in terms of the history of art, how that, mm. that tendency to back in, let's say, the... 1970s, the idea that you would have a camera in your face and talk into it and sort of mm -hmm. record the quotidianness of your life and sort of the different things that are happening to you. And now that's just, there's tons and tons and tons of that into like insane levels of banality on YouTube. Mm -hmm. But then there's also this um, current of people who, again, sort of maybe without even really knowing it, are sort of hacking into, to use a bad metaphor, sort of hacking into what you know again someone who is lonely someone who is isolated and you know using beauty lighting and facing the camera and directly talking to somebody who is isolated and alone and convincing them that hey you know maybe you're isolated because um you know uh black people or women mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. and like mm -hmm. you should be owed something mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. You you got your finger on something something really important. I want to I actually want to kind of pull apart two things. Mm. The first is that we use media for self reflection in lots of ways, and we have for a very long time. 
confessional poetry, um, photo albums in the 19th century. We've taken pictures of ourselves in order to kind of understand our place in the world and kind of reflect on our own images long before we lived in the celebrity-driven, um, hyper-commercial world that we inhabit now. So I think that's kind of a long-term, long human impulse, and in some ways social media served that. The, the, the other point, though, uh, about radicalization is, is, is deeply terrifying. You know, I, I have a kind of pocket theory. Pocket theories are things for which I've done no research, but which I believe anyways. Mm. Um, I, have a, I have a pocket theory about online media and other media and that they are they're sort of um, they tend to evoke and link people not only by shared belief, but by shared feeling. Mm. And as you suggested, people who are shared, who share isolation, who share loneliness, who share vulnerability, particularly men who may have been economically disenfranchised or who may have enjoyed a kind of race privileged white men mm-hmm. um, and, dis- and, and are now seeing that race privilege decline. You know, if you gather those folks together and offer them other stories, um, boy, those stories can be awfully attractive. You know, I, I, I grew up in a, a small town where there was a, a large rural working class. And, you know, a lot of those guys hadn't been out of that town for much of any time at all. But they exuded a kind of, my, some of my male friends exuded a kind of power because they had pickup trucks and um, beautiful boots. And, you know, they might not be able to control the world, but they could um, take any feelings of helplessness they might have had and um, resolve those right there in their in their bodies. Now, if you can't do that anymore, if the economy is such that you, you don't have the money to buy that truck or, or put on those shoes, where do you go? Where do, where, where do you go? And I think there's a, there's a hidden story here. The obvious story, I think, is, is, is that you know, vulnerable people fall for, the, fall for the right, and they have for a long time, and it's a problem. But there's another, another problem, which is that large parts of America have become not only radically unequal, but radically deindustrialized. Right. The same era that brought us the Internet saw the, the radical deindustrialization of American manufacturing. And so there are large portions of the landscape out there with people inhabiting them who, ha- who, are, who don't just feel disenfranchised, they are disenfranchised. Exactly. They don't just feel deplorable, haven't just been called deplorable, but, but live lives in which, in which the economy is telling them they are not worthy of employment. That, that kind of thing really makes you open to authoritarian belief. Of course. And it's probably easier to believe that George Soros or, you know, lizard people or whoever <laughs> is controlling the media when you have no local newspaper, like your resources to better acquaint yourself with the world and sort of understand mm-hmm. your immediate surroundings are being hacked away by these financial forces and then also by technology. Yep. And, and by a third force, which, which we haven't really addressed uh, yet, which is the very deliberate, intentional, forceful campaign of people on the right to foment untruth. Yes. You know, Fox Media has been fomenting untruth now for a decade. They have been they have been playing, you know, just just tremendous games trying to stir the population up. And they've kind of created a sort of segregated media ecosystem in which you know, if you watch a lot of Fox, you're going to see things that are patently untrue. And the fact that mainstream media that might be doing fact checking dismiss them just provides more evidence that they are truth because yes. the media industries that are doing the fact checking are somehow fake news. And so some of what we hear out of Trump's mouth on Twitter um, really doesn't come from the Internet or, or its ability to organize the new right. And it, it comes instead from the interaction of the internet and other systems with places like Fox News or Breitbart that are deliberately saying things that are untrue 
racist, bigoted, proto-fascist. Right. And, and that's a real problem. And, and that's a deliberate, intentional kind of effort that, that's really quite different than, than what we've been talking about so far. Right. And I mean, I also feel like it's more than just sort of deliberate untruths. It's choosing to focus on things that maybe they did happen, but they provide a very narrow understanding of what the world of what is happening in the world. I actually I want to dispute that a little bit. I think the narrow understanding part is correct. But these are these are folks that have promoted the idea that, you know, Hillary Clinton participated in a pedophilia ring. Right. I mean, like, let's get <laughs> also serious. Also that, here. yes. <laughs> yeah, Pizzagate. I mean, it, it's not just also that. Like, that's at the core of it. Yes, it um, is. Yeah. And 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 it's it's so unbelievable, so far away from any rational world. You know, I I live in a world where I'm surrounded by political scientists who believe that human beings fundamentally act at, are rational actors, and rational choice theory is a major theory in political science. What do you do with rational choice theory? when a man goes and shoots up a pizza parlor because he believes there's a pederast gang run by the first lady inside. I mean, we, we, we've entered a zone that we don't have a language for anymore. Now, there's some good news um, in that we, we've been in this zone before, not in America so much as in Germany in the 20s and 30s and some parts of America in the 30s, and we've figured our way out of it before. Um, but the, the first step, I think, is to start calling out some of these things for what they are, um, pernicious untruth, uh, propaganda, intentional, um, sensationalist rumor mongering um, in support of particular candidates. And P Putin couldn't do it any better. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I'm not a huge Russiagate person, I'm going to admit. I have. <laughs> what does that mean, though? What, what does it mean to be a Russiagate person? That, that sounds like an identity. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I just I just uh... busted. <laughs> blew it i blew it um but no i just have i have doubts about a direct connection between putin and donald trump um, sure and, and that's not necessarily what i meant although I, I don't have doubts but i but i but i but that's that's not what i meant and I, and I think that's a moot point what i meant simply was that you know putin putin's um putin's military and intelligence services have made every effort to shape um belief in the united states by swamping social media and that's all i meant i, I meant that that fox is as pernicious or, or worse in the media space than Putin and his team have been in social media space. Right. Okay. Well, we can agree on that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we talked about, um, you know, potentially uh, you know, breaking up some of these, these systems. What, what would it look like if we had a different system? Well, I really like Nathan Schneider's work, um, you know, on, on uh, platform cooperativism. I like the idea that these systems that we're talking about here are fundamentally utilities, uh, utilities that exist for the social good that we need now the way that we need electricity or the telephone. And that as utilities, we can have them state owned, but we could also own them cooperatively. We could own them together. We can run them together. And in some ways, that was part of the vision of the early internet. And it was part of the way that the well worked and other systems have worked. And that's a part of the vision that we could recuperate and institutionalize um, in co-ops. You know, I, I was delighted to learn that 11% of the electricity produced in the United States and sold in the United States um, is made by cooperatively owned firms. That's firms, you know, in which the users are the owners. Imagine that the users were the owners of the systems that we work with today. Yeah, it would be huge. But again, there's like this fear and misunderstanding that just because something is free and available to the public, that it is in fact a public service or that you could potentially have a say in this 
sort of nebulous thing that gives you a voice supposedly, um, but is also inherently technical, right? I love I love the way that you said that you could have a voice because I actually think that's actually part of the problem here. Yes. <laughs> the problem the, the the problem that you just described is the same problem we face as citizens when we think about the automobile system, the road system, um, architecture. You know, I don't know how to design a building or build a building, um, but I know how to call my city government mm-hmm. and um, call them about a code violation if there's been one. I don't know how to fix a road, but I know how to call in and get a pothole fixed. And I know that that's my right and my obligation as a citizen. I'd like to, to, to think more about what our rights and obligations are as citizens with regard to social media. Currently, social media and a longstanding American individualist ideology have combined to help us imagine that the real issue is just how do I speak on their system? How do I use their system to express myself? You know, that's an entirely kind of consumerist, self-centered, even narcissistic vision. Mm -hmm. The question that I think we need to be asking is, how can we relate to these systems in ways that help us speak and act as citizens, not just as selves, but as citizens? And if we start doing that, we're going to come up with new ownership structures. Um, The technology, as you said earlier, is not that hard to learn. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And, you know, much as we've built highways and buildings and city plazas, that are used collectively, we can build digital systems, digital infrastructures that can be used collectively. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Totally my pleasure. Thank you for doing it. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.